the UK and other leading economies face a challenge. How does it grow while at the same time cutting its impact on the environment? The traditional way national economies and companies have competed with each other is on cost. Over the last 50 years or so, companies have shifted production to lower wage regions. That has left many industrial regions in decline. Many jobs have been lost in manufacturing industries. With that has come social upheaval and disruption. And a cost-driven approach ignores and often exacerbates the environmental impact of manufacturing. Cost offers only one way of understanding the efficiency of a production process or of an economy. If companies and countries are to consider the environment alongside cost, they need to be able to understand their own impacts. And when they succeed in improving their environmental performance, they need to be able to demonstrate this and use it as a competitive advantage. After all, many consumers are now happy to pay a bit more for a product if it helps save the planet. But this is hard to do if you are buying the raw materials, which contribute the majority of any product's carbon costs, from a supplier halfway around the world in a country with poor data on how these materials were produced. Sam Turner is net zero champion at the high value manufacturing catapult. He's been working to develop a concept the UK government and others can use to guide their industrial strategy, while paying attention to local jobs, green impacts, and their country's overall competitiveness. We've kind of coined green showing this definition, and it started from us looking at a risk perspective. We have two challenges we, we saw. One was the need to decarbonize our manufacturing footprint territorially. And second was the risk that if we, if we did that, we, we could potentially end up doing that by offshoring it. So how do we decarbonize, but not lose the value, uh, economic value of manufacturing content in the UK? I went in as an engineer expecting to find a technical solution and realized we needed some system level solutions. The major challenge was system level. How we account for carbon through manufacturing supply chains? How do we do that in a transparent way that's common and standardized across sectors? How do we do it in a way that either would underpin carbon pricing or you know, in the nearer term, maybe informs markets for voluntary adoption. So consumers, OEMs, are making informed choices about the carbon content of their supply chain, which would drive a market for reducing carbon content and would start to reward manufacturers who make investments to reduce carbon content. If offshoring has been the placing of manufacturing content in low-cost regions of the world, greenshoring is placing manufacturing content in low-carbon regions of the world. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with the High Value Manufacturing Catapult, one of a network of independent, not-for-profit organisations that bridge the gap between research and industry in the UK. To learn about the work they've been doing to help the country's manufacturers compete in terms of their carbon impact. It's an idea whose time has very much come. The UK's manufacturing performance has long fallen below its research performance. And the events of recent years have demonstrated that the country can't rely entirely on globalisation. We're, by you know, various measures, top three in the world in terms of academic output. And we're not at that level in terms of industrial output. The skills that the UK have in design, so it's the design for manufacturing, I think is something that we possibly don't 
talk about enough about where the UK really has your crown jewels, the key skills. And if you're good at the design, you would then hope that it makes a better case for the manufacturing to also be done here. And I think in the past, maybe that's reduced, hasn't it? We're good at the design and then it goes offshore. We're in a, an environment now, you know, after COVID and Brexit and Ukraine conflicts, where there's more sympathy for looking at how do we build that UK competitive supply base that provides resilience, provides wealth, and actually could be a big answer to how we decarbonise not only our footprint, but start to decarbonise the wider footprint and lead industrial decarbonisation globally. As a consumer or an investor, it can be hard to identify how your spending choices can help the world reach net zero. Often a few clever ideas come to prominence, but have little real impact. If you look at all the the claims around low zero carbon products, we've already fixed global warming problem. And you know, that's not we're a long way from doing that. So there's still there's there's room for greenwashing, either unintentionally or, or intentionally at the moment. So clarity on transparency is really important. If you have that transparency, then you end thinking, well, or if that data is available, that's available to investors who could then ask and say, well, where are these standards? Give me the evidence base of what the plan is, the current footprint is for this product, for this supply chain, or the plan to to get it down to zero carbon. So it starts to incentivise funding in the right places. To have the biggest impact, we need to focus not so much on outwardly green solutions, but at the roots of the economy. It's easy to put green money into an offshore wind farm or a product that is overtly addressing net zero solutions and use case solutions. Whereas things like steel, the foundation industry is seen as being dirty. We don't invest in those. Whereas that's where the money is required, right? Transformation of the current high emitting sectors is where the green finance is required. And because we don't have the subtlety, I suppose, in in, in reporting and, and, and standards and transparency, that it's easier to say, say, we'll put our green money into green products, which are new markets, right? But we've got to decarbonize the existing manufacturing base. So so the standards would and, and transparency would help to channel money into those investments to drive the changes we've been talking about. But equally, they would underpin carbon accounting and carbon pricing at a regulatory level or or carbon border tariffs. And they would underpin voluntary market adoption. To get to the roots of the problem, we need to identify where carbon costs are coming from. Typically, this doesn't lie in an individual product's design or features, but in the materials they are made from. A study we've done as the Catapult demonstrated that between 60 and 95% of the embodied emissions in manufactured goods for the sectors we looked at, we looked particularly at automotive, aerospace, um, electronics sector, we, we found that 60 to 95% of the embodied emissions were in the raw materials processing steps, so not in the downstream manufacturing activities. So think about, you know, we work closely with the aerospace sector, for example, some great work being done to decarbonise the OEM and tier one assembly facilities. You know, that, that's scratching at five to 15% of the problem. The real problem lies in the material sourcing, which generally comes from overseas. So you know, bringing that material sourcing here, looking at clusters where we actually think about material production alongside the mid-tier manufacturers are processing that, the, 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 alongside those OEMs who actually need to assemble those is the value we're trying to bring. The high-value manufacturing catapult is ideally placed to help companies and the country's political leadership identify ways to cut these costs. 
Catherine Bennett is CEO. The reason for a catapult existing is to what we call de-risk innovation. I th- you know, probably about 12, 13 years ago, the, the government at the time were looking clearly at industrial strategy. It was a, a buzzword then. And they ordered a number of review- reviews and uh, Herman Hauser, for example, was asked to, to do a review. This resulted as a result of pressure from companies too, which I think is absolutely key about, hopefully, while the catapults are are turning into be a success over the decade they've been in existence. So it wasn't just somebody in Whitehall thinking, let's do this, or um, or even a company pressurising in isolation. It was a combination of the two. Part of the review work that was done at the time, of course, was to look at what's done in other international settings. And Fraunhofer Institute was a good example of a system that they saw working very well. The Catapult Network was set up a decade ago and was shaped in part by work done by local authorities and development agencies to identify local business and research clusters. My Catapult is made up of seven centres, some of whom have actually been around a lot longer than the word catapult existed in terms of talking about innovation. Um, so Warwick Manufacturing Group, as part of Warwick University, was established 30 years ago. And then there's also the AMRC at the University of Sheffield in, in Rotherham. That was, that's just celebrated 20 years. So what happened was that the government did encourage these different centres to actually get together. Then there's other centres such as MTC that were only created 10 years ago. Um, and that wasn't done directly with one university. It was actually a number of universities and also large companies in, in Coventry who really could see an, a need for collaborative working. So lots and lots of different contexts and history. The Catapult's links with both business and research communities allows them to spot clever ideas when they first appear on the horizon. Well, the big thing for us, of course, is foresighting future technology. And whenever I say to people where I'm working now, they're like, what's the big thing that you're working on? And it's quite hard in a a sector as large as manufacturing because there's so many different facets to it, which I've found fascinating since I've, I've been in this role. It lets them see connections between the work of different researchers who are often as competitive, if not more so, than businesses. Universities are extremely competitive, so it's not all a bed of roses. The most important thing is what academics do love working on is helping solve problems together. Um, They may say, oh, no, I'm far more expert in that area than you are, but that's part of the academic thrill, I guess, the competition. Where we are is more in what it actually tangentially means for business. You know, the idea, how can they turn that into reality in terms of manufacturing a prototype into commercial reality? And it is able to help academic researchers and R&D teams in the private sector make the most efficient use of national testing facilities. This is particularly part of where we've been evolving over the last 10 years is, for example, we wouldn't want um, what they call a carbon fibre weaving machine replicated. It's a very expensive uh, item of equipment to buy in one place that, you know, could be used. the, The similar technology and capability is actually needed elsewhere, but you wouldn't necessarily buy a second one. One of the other aspects that we bring is the convening power. Maybe this is, again, an expression often used, but you think about those three and a half thousand people that we directly employ, uh, working with their partners respectively, and of course the regional um, approach and the regional spread they have, and then add to that 
the university connections. And by the way, our university connections are not just what we call our sort of home anchor universities. There's this huge number of other academic institutions we work with. This has had a real world effect, helping businesses shape themselves around new technologies and new demands from consumers for more environmentally efficient goods. Been around 11 years and still evolving in terms of what we're contributing and some incredible statistics of things we've done over those 11 years. We've worked with nearly 26,000 companies. One example which is you know, still in, in our hearts and minds is the work that the Catapult did, and I'm sure you've heard about this um, during the COVID, in terms of the ventilator challenge. And that was a great example of getting companies together and our different centres across several sites, absolutely laser focused on how they can help the nation design, well, not design because they, they use an existing product, but how they could ramp up production of these ventilators. Another example I could give you is work that AMRC and Rotherham have done on a project with a company called the Ultimate Battery Company, uh, which was all about electric vehicles. And that was as a result of a company coming up with an innovation, but they really, really needed the academic help. And we were able to convene with, with AMRC and the University of Sheffield and some other partners, get all the great minds together. They've created 500 new jobs on this project and actually they've set up a facility alongside AMRC. So that's a good example of an innovation coming to reality. Russ Hall is the high-value manufacturing catapult, chief engineer for Net Zero. He's also the lead for sustainable manufacturing and circular economy at WMG, the Warwick Manufacturing Group. His academic background is in metallurgy, and that led him to work with Frog Bikes, a UK manufacturer that has been working to improve the environmental impact of its products. March, April time last year, I became involved in a project called the UK Bike Valley. And the UK Bike Valley is actually a great example of where we're trying to greenshore an industry. So UK Bike Rally, the sole aim of it is to look at the reinvigoration of bicycle manufacture in the UK. And that's being organised by the UK Bicycle Association. And as part of that, I came across Frog Bikes. Frog Bikes are really interested in looking at how they could manufacture their products more sustainably. Frog Bikes was born 10 years ago, not long after HVM Catapult. But while HVM Catapult is focused on the economy as a whole, Frog, like many of the most successful businesses, identified a specific gap in the market and went about filling it. Shelley and Jerry Lawson were the founders of the company and their idea for it came directly from their own experience as parents. The idea came to us when our own children were quite young and learning to ride bikes and we were surprised by how heavy and how badly designed most kids' bikes were, and really nothing had moved on since we learnt to ride in the 70s. So We felt there was an opportunity for much lighter bikes for children to enjoy cycling more, um, and for them to be better designed specifically for children. We have a really wide range of children's bikes from three sizes of balance bike, so really from the age of about 18 months to 24 months upwards, right the way through your first pedal bike, um, through what we call hybrids, which are fairly good multi-purpose 
um, range of bikes, and then some specialists as well. So city bikes, road bikes, mountain bikes, um, and even track bikes with velodromes. So we've got a really comprehensive range of very lightweight aluminium frame and fork bikes. And we sell them in 30 or 40 countries, depending on when you're counting, um, around the world, uh, in about four continents around the world. And we sell them almost exclusively through independent bike stores where parents get really good service, the child will get measured properly for a bike, and the bikes are, are built and maintained to last as long as possible. The local approach to production and to distribution has played a big role in Frog's environmental as well as business success. By focusing on servitization, designing products to be used longer, often under an ongoing contract rather than a single sale, companies can build both a connection with the customers and distributors, and reduce the carbon footprint of products for each year of their life. But the environment wasn't the initial focus of Frog's strategy. Instead, they realised that they needed to account for their environmental impacts as they built their business. We didn't really start by feeling it was going to be a source of competitive advantage. We started on a more personal level, feeling that as we were getting bigger as a manufacturer, we became increasingly aware of the carbon footprint we were causing, especially by using aluminium, because virgin aluminium unfortunately has a very high uh, carbon uh, footprint, very high emissions. Um, so as we, as we grew, this became more and more important to us to try and do something about it. Shelley used the greenhouse gas protocols to help her think about the business's impacts. Scope 1 of the protocols considers an organisation's own impacts. Scope 2, the impacts of the energy sources it uses. And Scope 3, the impact of its supply chain. We, we looked first at the, the kind of the low-hanging fruit, which for most companies is probably what's known as Scope 2, so the emissions from the power that you buy. Um, we're lucky enough, we don't, we don't have any furnaces or any big plant of our own, um, so we've got no Scope 1 emissions. But Scope 2 was substantial enough for us because we run two sites in the UK and you've got to light them and heat them and power all the equipment and, and so on. So we looked, uh, we looked quite hard at that and we had to lobby our landlords in both sites and it took several years to persuade them to buy all the power for both sites from renewable sources rather than the old-fashioned fossil fuels. But once they did that, that was great because every tenant on both sites has now got renewable power and that reduced our emissions to some extent. Um, nowhere near as much as we need to for the, in, the, what's embedded in the aluminium. And it was looking at its raw materials, essentially aluminium tubes for the bike's body, along with some steel for other parts like spokes, that showed Shelley how much of Frog's environmental impact fell under scope three. When we started footprinting um, our emissions, uh, it was obvious that the aluminium was the real hotspot for us. 90% plus of our emissions come from the aluminium. So that was where we needed to focus our attention on, firstly, can we make a really strong bike with a bit less aluminium? And secondly, where can we get the aluminium from, which is not as highly emitting? One way to address these impacts was to reduce the amount of metal used in Frog's bikes. And as they are already focused on making their bikes as lightweight as possible for their young users, this was something that they were well-placed to address. It was just one more factor in their overall design strategy, and they could do it without adding cost. Almost everything that we've done has either been very similar in price or in some cases um, has actually saved money. So 
if we talk a little bit about the design of the bikes, we looked, um, well, we tasked our R&D team to look at whether they could make an equally robust bike using less material. And they started by looking, for example, at the spoke pattern in a wheel and relacing it in, an, in a, a novel way. And they've managed to take 10 to 12 spokes out of all of our wheels, and they are just as strong. It's better for the child because it's lighter, it's better for us because it's, it's uh, cheaper and quicker to build, uh, and it's better for the planet because you're using less material. We've also lowered part of the bike, which means there's less aluminium used in the bike and the frame and the fork, which has taken weight out. Now that's our ultimate goal, but because we're using less aluminium, then it, it does mean there's less impact on the environment. So slowly we can chip away at some of the things we're doing to improve the Im environmental impact that our bikes have. The structure of Frog's distribution network, as much as the design of its bikes, has also helped it reduce the impact of its use of virgin materials. And it's also important that each bike is used for as long as possible. So, you, so we're not continually digging more stuff out of the ground to make yet another bike. So we build the bikes very, um, very robustly, so they last a long time, but we also encourage people uh, to either sell them or pass them on uh, when their children have outgrown. Bike shops struggle to make a business out of second-hand sales. So Frog has set up an MOT scheme similar to the UK Minister of Transport scheme for certifying the roadworthiness of cars, for used bikes. That incentivizes the stores to support the circular economy and gives Frog valuable insights into the performance of their products. They do a kind of MOT on it. They can change any bits that are beginning to wear. They can report back to us any bits that are beginning to wear over time, because in the past we'd have sold a bike and never seen it again. Now we're starting to see what bikes that are five, seven, eight years old are looking like. So that's great to feed back into our R&D. The launch of our M&T scheme is about helping the stores, even if they haven't sold the second hand, they're getting a customer who's down the road, who's picked up a second hand bike, beginning to build that relationship. So this is about us supporting them again. But there's only so much Jerry and Shelley can do with their own business, as they look to source components and materials from more environmentally sustainable suppliers, it becomes extremely hard to get the evidence they need. The quick changes, the, the scope too, there's some excellent free tools for that. It's really easy to plug in what, you, what your energy bills are, how many kilowatt hours you've bought in the last year, and maybe how many miles you've driven, and it spits out your, uh, your emissions. That's good, reliable data that anybody can easily access. But for a manufacturer like us, of course, all of the emissions are scope three. And there's, there's nothing I've found that does a, a thorough enough job um, for our particular supply chain. And ours is no more complicated than anybody else's, but we needed something that would help us find the emissions from aluminium that we source from a particular part of the world, coupled with the logistics that get you from one part of the world to another. That data is sort of publicly available if you go digging. So people like the Aluminium Federation were great at, but at the moment there's nothing that's 100% that's accurate. Frog have been working towards making their bikes from recycled materials and have already tested a model using 25% post-consumer materials. But with materials, whether virgin or recycled, coming from around the world, it is impossible for them to accurately gauge their successes. 
when we talk about greenshoring, there's there's a couple of big well, there's a number of big benefits from it. One is that not only would we have more control over the mixture of aluminium, and it would be easier to audit exactly what that material is and, and trace it through the supply chain if the supply chain is shorter, but also if it's made closer to home and, and basically outside Asia, the uh, energy mix is much more towards renewables. But very long term, we've said we will get to net zero by 2050. We can't do that without properly closing the loop on our supply chain. So that means when a bike has finally changed hands a number of times and been mended and repaired and patched up, it gets to the end of its commercial life. We will have to find a way to take that bike frame back and use the aluminium again. And we can't do that if our supply chain is spread out across the world. It will have to be close to where our main operations are. But as Russ explains, the UK is currently not able to supply the materials manufacturers like Frog need. In the UK, there isn't a huge amount of primary aluminium manufacturer. So it's very difficult for a company like Frog to know when they're buying their aluminium, what the actual environmental footprint of that aluminium is. So at the moment, they buy their aluminium from China and they don't know when they're buying it from China what the actual CO2 output, uh, if we're just talking about CO2, is. So it's very difficult for them to find out. And for them to do so, they have to go through intermediaries, they have to ask for certificates. There's no way of guaranteeing that that data is correct. Even without considering the environment, there are clear benefits to business resilience of local sourcing. Well, partly that it minimizes sustainability, but also partly that it minimizes the risk for UK manufacturing. So if all of your foundation material were to be outsourced, so foundation industries, concrete, metals, paper, chemicals, if all of that were to be outsourced to other countries, for whatever the reason is, whether that was an environmental argument or a cost argument, it puts the UK manufacturing sector at great risk because they have to rely on imports. To draw in the investment needed to supply materials like these, the UK will need to make a clear business case for building these facilities. The first thing we need to know is that there is a market for it. And that market can't be an individual manufacturing market. So it couldn't just be bicycles. Firstly, if you look at something like metal manufacture uh, for steel and aluminium, what you need to know is that there is a requirement for an amount of material that could uh, support the development of something like an aluminium smelting plant. So we're not talking a few tons. We need to be talking thousands of tons or tens of thousands of tons in order to make what is a significant investment worthwhile. Making those arguments for investment must consider the different interests of the country as a whole and the interests of individual businesses. The government's interested in job creation, they're interested in skills creation, they're interested in uh, GVA, so they want to know what the gross value added is going to be for the UK. Is it worthwhile supporting it? And it's a really good question, is it worthwhile supporting it? Why should they put taxpayers' money into things that aren't going to achieve anything for the UK? It's, it's a very good question. It's a slightly different question if you're a manufacturer. So you want to know that there is a market you can sell into that's going to be profitable and also that's going to be sustainable. So that's environmental sustainability. And knowing that your business, if you start it, is still going to be in, here in 10 years. It's no good starting something that's going to die after a few days. The timescales raw materials suppliers use to plan their investments and the buying cycles their customers work to are very different. 
I was invited to a uh, Australian trade delegation for critical materials last year. And if you imagine on one side of the table, there were a bunch of guys who owned mines and they wanted to develop mines for materials to go into batteries. And on the other side of the table were people who owned automotive companies or worked for automotive companies. And the miners called out straight away that the types of investment they were looking at were not the same as the buying cycles for automotive companies. If you want to run a mine, actually what you're looking for is 10, 20 years worth of investment. What you don't want is three years in negotiation about who's going to give you the cheapest product. So there has to be some something that acts in the middle or some way of translating the demands from one to another. The catapult can help bridge some of these gaps. They can talk to both suppliers and OEMs, and they can take what they learn from both to government and to the research community. There's things that we at the catapult can say that maybe a business can't say, because there's always other aspects, there are own shareholders, etc. But we can say, look, we're hearing this from business. We need to get the circular economy going. We need to be looking at use of raw materials. We need to be getting energy prices down. The catapult can also help all of these parties make their needs and challenges known to standards bodies. And Sam believes that standards-based systems for carbon accounting will be at the centre of allowing businesses to compete in terms of environmental efficiency. So we, we've been working with BSI, the High Value Manufacturing Catapult, and with some of our other catapult colleagues in energy systems and renewable energy and, uh, and the digital, digital catapult as well. But working with BSI, to survey the standards landscape and interview key industry stakeholders as to where they think the problems lie. You know, what do they need for transparent carbon accounting to make the right choices, to make the right design choices, to make the right supply chain choices. So we've been conducted a, a review of a number of sectors. The outputs of that assessment are, are being used to kind of set effectively requirements for those standards. And then we're, we're using that to go and review what's out there in terms of current standards. And there's not a shortage. There's just a lack of clarity and, 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 and adoption. And maybe there are some gaps. So we're reviewing that currently. Do we need new standards? Is there going to be a single standard that will tell you how to do it? There will be, a, hopefully, I would hope, my, my grand vision is that one day we would have a, a single portal that you could go to and you would enter the type, of, the type of industry you're in, the type of company you are, size of company, your position in the supply chain. And it would give you a framework that you then followed for how you did your carbon accounting or your emissions or your sustainability accounting. If we can do that foundation work of how you measure it, it will probably show us why green shoring things is really important. The UK's move away from local manufacturing was mirrored by a move into services and particularly into financial services and technology. That may now set the country up to play a leading role in tracking environmental performance. Yeah, there, there are some real strengths there that the UK has in the tech sector as a whole. And you think about, um, yeah, you know, fintech, you could turn some of that world-leading skill base towards this challenge. There are opportunities for things like blockchain here, or distributed ledger technologies, to be more precise. Um, you know, one option for reporting carbon content is every company reports their carbon, their scope one and two content and you pass it down a blockchain because everybody's scope three is someone else's scope one and scope two. You could have a hybrid system where you've got kind of lookup table with averages for a region and a sector uh, for the black spots and you've got actual data where companies in supply chain have reported. And you, you know, you could put weightings and incentives on the way you report that data. So, you know, a higher trust weighting, rating on a, on a, a 
report that has actual reported data versus, you know, database data. Developing systems like this will bring business to the City of London, as well as enabling manufacturers around the country to compete on carbon content. In the future, global markets will price in embodied carbon. There's going to be a huge carbon accounting sector. Huge opportunities for consultancies, for com conventional you know, financial accounting firms, for the tech firms developing the blockchain, the, the data analytics and reporting systems. So it's going to be a, a hugely vibrant and innovative sector at some point. So it's another area for us where we're interested in looking at what, what can you develop in the UK? Where can we support UK companies in providing some of those solutions? And then we'd like to test and pilot those. And much of the Catapult's work looks at the impact on the country's regions. This allows it to form partnerships with local leaders who are perhaps better able to represent the needs of business. We have particularly strong links with Andy Street in the West Midlands. Um, he's an extremely strong supporter of our two centres there in the West Midlands, Warwick Manufacturing Group and MTC. And he is happy to shout from the rooftops about innovation and how it can help his his area. Andy Burnham equally, uh, we're doing a lot of work now in Manchester. We recently announced, uh, agreed an MOU with Greater Manchester Authority with one of our centres, CPI. There's a huge areas there in Rochdale that um, they've got real opportunities. They want to get partnership working. But this will also take national leadership, Sam says. We've got to not only look at the opportunities that Net Zero brings in terms of creating the next wave of offshore wind farms, more modular reactors for nuclear, um, decarbonised transport, be that automotive, aerospace, but also looking at how we decarbonise the supply base that we have. So that supply base is low, is low, low carbon, coupled with design authority and ownership. So the R&D and design is really important. So government can incentivise that, you know, building those design skills and competencies, incentivising businesses to either grow in the UK or come and place themselves here, where they will put their you know, head office, their design authority here, and start to have benefit of access to low carbon supply chain clusters that invest in the infrastructure that can clearly report and account and demonstrate their, their low carbon content and value. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North, edited and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and my co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and the low-carbon content material that is the foundation of our work is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, the high-value manufacturing Catapult, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.